When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Kill Count. Before we get into the podcast, I just wanted to mention that The Invisible Man is now available on streaming. Back in our first episode, we did a deep dive into the 1933 original Invisible Man film, but we also had the opportunity to catch up with the director of the new film, Lee Winnell. We all really enjoyed this film, we thought it was a fun, fresh take on this original property, and if you didn't get the chance to see it in cinemas, it's now available on streaming, anywhere you watch your streaming films. So go and have a watch. And now, on to the podcast. I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds, these are gulls, crows, swifts. I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't have a chance. Hello, and welcome to Kill Count, the podcast that dissects the deaths in some of your favorite horror movies. Each episode will attempt to remember the number of kills that occur, and vitally, the gruesome details of these cinematic slayings. We'll also have a sprinkling of horror bonus features, including horrifying haikus and the best B-movie recommendations. My name is Allie, and I'll be the Crypt Keeper this week. Joining me, as always, is Mike, a producer, film journalist, and horror podcaster. Hello, Mike. Hello. Also, Dan, a film editor who will always be the first to die in any horror film. Hello, Dan. Hello, Allie. And very excitingly, we are joined by our very first special guest ever on the show, Anna, who, among many things, is the director of Underwire Festival and the co-founder of The Final Girls, the London-based film collective focused on exploring feminist themes in horror cinema. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. Hello. I'm so excited. I had no idea I was the first special guest. Now I feel the pressure. (laughs) Well, you're the perfect special guest because you have so much background with horror cinema. I mean, Final Girls is such an incredible legacy and you guys have been going now for two years. Almost four, actually. We're going to turn four in May. Yeah, it feels really weird. But then again, you know, what is time anymore? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, You would maybe give us a little bit more about your background with horror and what makes you love horror cinema. What's your favorite horror movie? Oh, absolutely. I think I was first introduced to horror at a way too young an age. My cousin showed me both uh, the first Nightmare on Elm Street films when I was about nine. And I had nightmares for a solid month. And then I went back for more. And I couldn't stop after that. So it's always been a a kind of a secret pleasure. I didn't really have friends who were horror fans when I was growing up. And it's kind of one of the one of the sweet impetuses behind uh, 
founding the final girls with my friend Olivia is because we sort of became friends and bonded over this secret shared obsession and pleasure that we got from watching horror films. And I enjoy watching this stuff because of the way that it reminds me of the power of cinema. Like it physically makes you feel something. You're scared, you're afraid, you have nightmares. It follows you around for years afterwards. I did a podcast about The Witches, the 1999 uh, Nick Rogue film the other day. And honestly, I was dreading going back to that film because I still remember vividly how scared I was of it as a kid. So that's in a nutshell why I love horror and I can never get enough of it. It's because the next film you watch might be a B-movie, might be something from the 1940s or the 50s or the 70s or a completely new film that just ignites something in you and taps into some anxiety or some hidden fear and makes you really viscerally feel filmmaking and cinema. I, I also want to say I'm a really big fan of the um, witchcraft series that you guys have done on Final Girls. Witchcraft oh, in you. cinema and witchcraft in lore is something I really love. I actually have um, a witch tattooed on my forearm, no which way. is very dear to me. Which, which witch? Well, have you watched the Disney Channel original movie, Halloween Town? Oh, not this again. No, oh, I Dan, don't. come on. I have don't you, think I have. It's a TV film from 1999 and they made an entire series out of it. And I think they're very beloved by people people who grew up watching Disney Channel in the early noughties. She's dedicated to that witch in particular, but in general, a larger love of the lore of witches. Oh my God, that's amazing. We should do a podcast together. <laughs> oh man, well, I would love to talk about Halloween Town in, in far more detail. So, you know, we'll hook up after this and we'll talk about it. Cool. So I guess I'm just going to quickly go over the rules now for those who haven't listened before. In the past, we've done it so that no one knew the film ahead of time. And we just sort of relied on our knowledge or pre-existing knowledge of the film. But to make it a little bit more interesting, what we've done is everyone's guessing the kills ahead of time. And that way, everyone can revisit the film and we can all have kind of a, a discussion where everyone has the film in the forefront of their mind. So you guys know what film we're talking about this week. We are talking about Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 thriller, The Birds. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. I mean, birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. You know what I mean? When we say Hitchcock, I feel like it's sort of a daunting subject to talk about because his name is so looming large in popular culture. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't know who he is. So I realize it's a loaded question, but you know, Mike, what is your relationship with Hitchcock's work in terms of how you first came to it and specifically the birds? Oh, I, I absolutely, I mean, this isn't a hot take, but I absolutely love Alfred Hitchcock. You know, there are some filmmakers that maybe are over-celebrated, but I think everything he does is so unbelievably groundbreaking. And what I love most about him, I think I first discovered his films as a horror fan, seeking out some of the classics. So the first two I ever saw of his were... Uh, Psycho and the Birds, probably. And then studying film at university and that kind of thing, I then had to, you know, study his films and watch them all quite intensely. And what I love about Hitchcock is that obviously, you know, this is something I love about horror in general, really, that you can look at his films 
with a very academic eye, if you want to. But also, his films are just really, really fun popcorn movies. You know, Rear Window, Strangers on a Train, Rope. These are incredibly made films that you could analyse within an inch of their life if you want to. But also, they're just really fun to sort of throw on on a Friday night. And I, I still feel that way about all of his films. And yeah, he is, of course, known as the sort of master of suspense and the master of tension. And he really is. He can build tension like no other filmmaker. Uh, and The Birds is is such a good example of that. I think it is, it's really kind of strangely paced and deliberately paced. But I found myself even watching it for the sort of 10th time this weekend, uh, really, really gripped and tense and really fucking terrified as well <laughs> towards the end. So yeah. uh, I love Hitchcock, love the birds. I think he's a genius. Nice. Yeah, I, I was struck by this film when I was watching it thinking if it wasn't a Hitchcock film, I don't think it would have quite the elevated status that it does because... Yeah, well, I'll take that back. Yes, it has like the sort of the blob, the thing, the birds. It has that kind of that 60s crazy. Let's choose an animal out of a hat and make it a crazy, you know, B-movie staticky, as you say, popcorn film. But then you get this kind of Hitchcockian family drama that elevates it to another level. Yeah, absolutely. And all the performances are really interesting. The, the the characters are really interesting. Some of them are really weird. And it's kind of, and I guess this is similar to Psycho and a few of his other films. It feels like about five different genres in one. You feel like you're mm -hmm. watching a certain type yeah. of film in the first half, and then it suddenly blindsides you and becomes this other thing. And that's, you know, this was, you know, one of the first films he did off the back of Psycho. And it feels like it has that similar structure of kind of blindsiding you a little bit as to what film you're watching. Yeah, definitely. 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 Anna, what are your thoughts? Have you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen The Birds before. Is it one of your favorite Hitchcock films? Is it, um, you know, lower in the rung for you? Where does it sit? Yes, I have seen it before. And my relationship with Hitchcock is very similar to Mike's as well. You know, knew who he was, uh, studied him intensely at university. I have to say, though, it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock's. I found it really interesting to revisit it and thinking about it as a horror film above anything else, kind of for the purposes of this podcast. It's like, oh, let's see. You know, I wasn't scared when I initially watched it and I wanted to revisit my own relationship with the film. And I did not remember it being so strange. <laughs> like It felt like I was watching some sort of weird stalker thriller as opposed to a B-movie centered on killer animals. Totally, um, yeah. <laughs> Hitchcock's kind of most powerful elements about his cinema, I think, is the fact that he can take the schlockiest, most basic concept and elevate it and turn it into something that is worthy of analysis, that keeps you on your toes, that kind of doesn't fit into any one particular mold. Because even though I was looking for the horrific in this film, and there's plenty of it, I kept actually being sucked into the romantic drama of it and the every single mm. character having a lot of baggage, like psychological baggage, and then sort of learning to deal with it through being forced into the situation. And then obviously watching it in the context of a global pandemic and being stuck at home, there's also the idea of now <laughs> all these random people being forced to isolate with one another because there's this unexplainable, terrifying um, force outside of their homes that's trying to kill them. 
Yeah, definitely. Oh, the quarantine theme was not lost, I'm sure, on any of us (laughs) as we watched this. Uh, Felt more more relevant than ever. (laughs) Dan, I'm sure that you, because I know you went to university to study film as well, you might have a similar um, coming to Hitchcock. What do you think about The Birds as a work compared to his other ones? Is it one of your favorites? It might just get into like the top five. I don't don't think it'd be top three for me. But it is, I think, in the upper echelon of his films where he just knocks it out of the park on so many levels. I mean, Anna and uh, Mike have really um, summarized it really well in that just just how well calibrated everything is in that movie. I always forget how prominent the like melodrama and romance is in the movie. And it's done so well. The way it links to the horror is fascinating because it's almost as if the the story, the characters, the melodrama are at the forefront and the horror is just something that's maybe happening in the background that affects it in a way. It's not like horror led. Yeah. From my from my experience, this I this probably, as you say, Anna, it's not one of my my favorite Hitchcock films, actually, but I think it's a really interesting one to have a discussion about and to revisit. It's towards the end of his career, so you really see a culmination of so many things that he's explored through um, you know, his original films in the 30s and the 40s as a British filmmaker, and then coming into the Hollywood studio system and continuing to develop ideas there. This film, like for me, what I remember the most about it, and we'll talk about it as we go through, but the sound design, the montage editing, the special effects, um, and then the Hitchcockian women of, uh, you know, that we see kind of thematically playing out through so many of his films. So there's so much to unpackage. So I know that you guys have made your kill counts already. Mike, you have gone with four kills. How are you feeling about four? Well, I tried to go from memory as best I could but this was a really difficult film to remember exactly how many kills there are because obviously there's this wide scale attacking of of people in a town so I thought it's either something quite low because I was thinking of specific kills that I could remember which was yeah three or four or it could be like 58 or something I have no idea so I'm not feeling incredibly confident about that and Dan how many did you guess remind me Guest four. Uh, I just wanted to say that we should make the tagline for this podcast. I'm not feeling incredibly confident. Sure. Because <laughs> it's like every episode we say it at least three times. <laughs> but I mean, me and Mike have gone for the same same number and more or less the same thinking. I was wondering though, have you counted bird deaths? <laughs> yeah. So actually I'm reading back through my emails now because I was just, I actually didn't have your kills written down. I was remembering them from memory. And actually Mike, you have guessed three. Oh, I went lower. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so you did oh. guess three. Mike guessed three. Dan okay. guessed four. To your point, Dan, I am on the fence about that. There's one in particular that I can think of that I feel like might I might consider. I'm open to it being a discussion. Anna, you have gone with a much higher number. You've gone with seven. I went with seven and I I think I was being conservative at that time because I haven't rewatched the film <laughs> in a long time. And I was thinking, okay, so I sort of remember the final scene. I was like, surely there's quite a few of those characters who will totally end up dead. So let's just bring it up. And I thought that there were going to be more kills, to be honest. So the film begins in San Francisco and we meet our main protagonist, Melanie Daniels. She meets lawyer Mitch Brenner in a pet store. There was an Alfred Hitchcock cameo in like the first five seconds of the film, which I always find very amusing. So she goes into the pet store to get some birds and he mistakes her for a clerk, although 
he doesn't really mistake her. He knows her right away, but he decides he's going to play a little practical joke, pretending she's the clerk. Um, and he asks for help picking out a pair of lovebirds that he's getting as a gift for his sister. From the moment they speak to each other, it's kind of like sparks are flying. And obviously, that's kind of exacerbated by the fact that they're talking about a pair of lovebirds. So they leave the pet store. She decides that she's going to pull a little bit of a practical joke and bring the lovebirds to him directly. But she realizes he's gone out of town for the weekend. And then she travels down to meet him. And this is one thing where I noticed right away, I couldn't help but uh, compare the similarity to Psycho. Did you guys feel like that scene where she's driving down felt very similar to the initial scene where Janet Leigh is driving away? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's uh, yeah. very, very similar. Also, you really can't help but compare Tippi Hedren to Janet Leigh. Totally. And aside from their kind of physical similarity, I was also going to say it almost feels like Hitchcock is toying with the audience because Psycho is, you know, very famous for... A- killing off its protagonist within the first uh the first what half an hour or so which famously yeah. kind of took everyone by surprise because uh Janet Lee was such a big star at that time and i kind of feel that by just reminding us of those images from his big success just a few years prior and with the leading actress who is was not a famous star at this point i think this is her first role he's kind of toying with us to almost expect him to do the same thing that he did with psycho but obviously he doesn't so it's kind of always playing around with audience expectations yeah definitely i'm just thinking more about the behind the scenes stuff as well in terms of like his relationships with his leading women i know quite a bit about hitchcock's relationship with uh with tippy hedren because she's been quite outspoken over the years about his obsession with her. He was quite horrible to her from the sounds of it. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen HBO's The Girl. I have, yeah. You have? What did you think of it? You know, it is it is a TV movie, but I thought it was probably a little early uh, before culturally we started talking in earnest about what we allow artists and creatives to get away with. There is kind of this relationship between the director, a star director, and his leading lady who he is quote unquote making into a star that is incredibly problematic but also deeply fascinating. I guess getting back into the plot. So she makes it across, she drops off the lovebirds and then we sort of have this fun playful moment where she runs out of the house and she's hiding in the boat and she watches Mitch from afar as he goes in and he realizes she's been in the house. He has binoculars and he's watching her and they see each other. The way that this whole scene is filmed, the way that this entire film is filmed with the montage editing and these kind of point of view shots, you're always in the character's corner. The sense of watching and being watched, um, which I think Hitchcock's explored in several other films, Rear Window probably most notably. But yeah, what do you guys think of uh, the scene where they sort of see each other across the water? Oh, I thought that was one of my favorite scenes from the film. Oh my God, she would not get away with this in 2020. <laughs> like she would get blocked. Reportedly. Yeah, she breaks into his home. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of effort that she goes through to play a flirty prank on this random man that she met, to the, met in a pet store is a lot of <laughs> It's a lot. and But I love the kind of the playfulness of, of the the way the scene is filmed you know we see her sort of almost doing like like a head job you know she finds out all the details she does all the all the recon work she 
puts the the lovebirds in his house with a note for his sister, not for him, knowing that he'll instantly sort of like testing him to see if he would recognize that she had done it. And kind of her watching him and him running out and trying to catch a glimpse of her and then him running away. It's kind of so playful. It's almost shot like a uh, like a heist film in a way but in a really flirtatious way. And when they finally kind of, you know, meet again, when he goes to uh, meet her, he drives over to meet her at the bay where she rented the boat. That kind of all lovely, you know, swooping melodrama romance uh, approach suddenly becomes interrupted by this bird attacking her on the face. Yes, I think so. What do you suppose made it do that? That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. Oh, you're bleeding, too. Let's take care of that. And then we meet Mitch's mother, Lydia. I mean, I'm sure this isn't lost on any of you, but looks suspiciously like Melanie. Uh, I thought the <laughs> actress they cast looked very similar. I thought her hair was done very similarly. Um, and she takes an immediate disliking or kind of suspicion to Melanie. Dan, what do you think about uh, these two characters, or especially Lydia? What did you think of Lydia? Well, yeah, I was just trying to think if there's another like mother figure in any other Hitchcock film that is worth analyzing. I think. <laughs> You've missed the trick there. Um, no, she she is like cold. I mean, uh, even before she she opens her mouth, you 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 understand the situation fully. I love the melodrama, and this one plays out really well. I find, and I can't. Well, can you remember the actress's name? Was it uh, Jessica Tandy? I, I think it was. I think she does a really good job. Yeah, she's great. You know, she really doesn't want Melanie involved in any way, but Mitch kind of twists her arm. And so she ends up going to uh, their house for dinner that evening. And there we also meet Kathy, Mitch's younger sister. And then you sort of have this, like, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. There's just all these interesting characters sort of at dinner together. And we also learn that she's upset because her chickens won't eat. And she thinks it has to do with the feed. So she calls up the farmer only to find out that none of the chickens around the town are eating. So we sort of get this foreboding, um, kind of frightening thing. And who would have thought that chickens would be the source of fear in a horror film? In this scene, Melanie is playing the piano. She's playing Debussy's um, two arabesques. And I think it now would be a really great time to sort of talk a little bit and tease out the, the sound design for the film. Because this, when she's playing the piano, is only one of two times that we actually hear any kind of music in the film. And even that music is uh, diegetic. I'm sure we haven't really touched on it before, but what do you guys think of the sound design for this film? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a genius thing that he did once again, kind of subverting expectations. Because I think, you know, he worked for so, so many movies with Bernard Herman who who did those kind of quite quite I suppose you'd call them quite sort of classic orchestral scores a lot of the time um and obviously Psycho you know it's so famous for that score and that music coming through with the stabbing and everything and again it, to follow up this film with no music no score whatsoever and relying entirely on noises of birds to kind of build that tension and not relying on music at all I think makes it so much scarier actually that there, there, there are really just long scenes of just silence and then when that noise hits you when that bird noise hits when the birds attack it is overwhelming and kind of all-encompassing and yeah really kind of jarring but in a good way I, I think the sound design's amazing Mm. I also feel like it elevates the the drama as well. Like the scenes where the characters are, and there's quite a few scenes where characters are just having these very intense psychological discussions. 
And there's no orchestral music to tell you how to feel about that. And I really feel like that it relies on the strength of the script and the actors and the the way that the scene is filmed to convey these things. Whereas, you know, sometimes we rely on orchestral score to kind of remind us how we're supposed to feel. Yeah, it's it's really mm. brave, isn't it? So later that evening, after they've had dinner, uh, Melanie is staying with Annie. And the two of them have this really interesting scene where they sit down and they kind of talk about Mitch and Mitch's romantic past. And no surprise, but Annie used to be um, romantically involved with Mitch and it was sort of crumbled and ruined by Lydia's involvement. However, Annie loved Mitch as a friend so much uh, that she decided to uproot her life and move to Bodega Bay just to be near him. Does this film, does it pass the Bechdel test? <laughs> like there's there's tons of scenes where women talk to each other but i swear to christ they never talk about anything other than mitch you might be right i mean i just want to know what what does mitch have that makes women literally go absolutely insane is mitch the source of the birds going crazy as well is this the whole message of the film is it just about you know if you think about sort of um ways of referring to women as like chicks and birds then is are the birds meant to be women who are just going insane for mitch like is he really that Ooh. appealing a grown-ass oh, man that. who lives with his mother and does whatever his mother tells him to i like that i like that reading that or it it could just be the cable knit sweater those sweaters do terrible things to women <laughs> i mean there's so much to be said about hitchcock writing women hitchcock filming women and and the way that he always positioned these kind of like as you were saying before anna these like love triangles between people yeah. the, the role of the mother the role of the wife they bounce against each other i thought it was really interesting how one of the things that um tippy hedron's character kind of reveals to mitch when they really have kind of their first real conversation in Bodega Bay is that her mother abandoned her when she was 11 so she she's very visibly kind of still resentful and angry about that she clearly has uh, quite a lot of issues that she's carrying with her so the figure of, of Lydia becomes doubly problematic it's not well interesting really not problematic it's because it's not just a barrier for her getting together with Mitch it's also a figure of a mother that she is personally kind of resentful towards. She's almost resentful of the fact that he has a mother who he loves and who loves him and that she's involved in his life. And, you know, the final scene of the film, you know, the crux of the the relate the relate the core relationship of the film for me ultimately is not between Melanie and Mitch's relationship. It's between Melanie and Lydia. Will she find that mother figure that she misses so much? Now we're getting into maybe first first kill territory. After Annie and uh, Melanie chat, they hear a big thud at the door and they open it up and there's just a gull lying dead. Someone there? Who is it? Look. What do you guys think? I mean, should we count this as a death? I only want to count it if it would help if it benefits my win. You. <laughs> yeah. yeah, speaking of somebody with the lowest number, I would say no. no. It's your call, Ali. It's your call. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you know what? I'll make my final decision at the end. Um, so, so the next scene, uh, the next day, it's Kathy's birthday party. What the scene is really notable for is the first bird attack. Look! Look! Let me get the children into the house. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So this film very famously like used a lot of real birds. Uh, there were instances of using mechanical birds, and I think they spent like over $200,000 worth of mechanical birds. I don't know if you guys know a lot about the kind of behind-the-scenes special effects for these, but it was really interesting because the man who did um, is credited as doing quite a bit of the effect work is actually the man who designed Mickey Mouse. Uh, who, um, oh, yeah, I have heard that. Interestingly, around this time, they obviously would have been using blue screen, but because of the bird's rapid wing flapping they were not able to use that standard blue screen. And instead, they had to use something called the sodium vapor process or yellow screen. And the only person who was really capable of doing it and quite famous for doing it in Hollywood was Disney. Specifically, I, I might butcher his name, Ub Iwerks, who is famous for being the, the one of the original designers of Mickey Mouse. It's just interesting. I wouldn't have thought of a Hitchcock film being related to Disney in any way. <laughs> <laughs> the The effects are still really impressive i think like, i think mm. obviously you can tell at times when they they sort of have superimposed a load of birds over what's happening but i think like you said ali that that use of real birds is the key because at times you you do see these genuine these real birds panicking and they're probably not the sort of thing they could get away with these days making films with real animals but you do get the feeling that these birds are seriously panicked and are flying into these characters and these actors and as well as all the other special effects going on there are real birds in there and i think that's what's made those scenes age really well, actually, is there's, there's that kind of realism about it. I do also love the the sound of the birds, which I don't know, maybe this is because I've been just living by myself with a cat for a month now, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure those were like bird and gull noises mixed with cat screeching noises, and they just make the most horrifying sound. Did you guys catch that at all? Like, is it just me? Did I just hear cats when I should be hearing birds? I know they used a synthesizer to create a lot of the um, the sounds. So I think that's probably very likely that they didn't just utilize bird noises, but they kind of took other elements of an other animals and, and synthesized them together. That would make sense. So I know that we're really starting to ramp up, but I think now would be a good time to hit pause and hear about the B-movie of the week. So this week's B-Movie of the Week, let me just ask if uh, we have any Japanese kaiju B-Movie fans in the house. 
No. no. <laughs> so let me tell you about Gamera. Gamera was a film that was the response by another、um, Japanese production company after Godzilla came out. They saw how well Godzilla did, and they made Gamera as like a rival thing to get in on this、um, craze of monster movies. Gamera is a giant turtle that can breathe fire and fly. The franchise is twelve movies long.、Uh, I feel like I've watched a lot of movies and a lot of low budget B movies, but this may honestly be the worst. Have you watched all of them, Dan? I watched all of them. Yeah, twelve, all twelve. Just in quarantine. Just in quarantine. <laughs> I don't know if it was wise from a psychological standpoint to to expose myself to all twelve Gamera films, but <laughs> that's impressive. It's an impressive effort. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Mike. I I was expecting more enthusiasm from you guys. I'm not going to lie, but、uh, <laughs> may, maybe watch the trailer. Start with the trailer, and then and then you'll see you'll see what it's all about. I'm intrigued. I I guess it's because I've never been a huge Godzilla fan, but I'm a huge B movie fan. And I like schlock. Bucket loads here. Bucket loads. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, thank you, Dan. My pleasure. So yeah, so we've had this first big bird attack at the birthday party,、um, and then the next morning, Lydia decides to go and speak to the farmer who delivered her the chicken feed. Mike, do you want to take a guess at our next kill? It's the absolutely horrific moment where、uh, she finds the guy.、Uh, she finds first of all a whole bunch of dead birds, and then the guy with his eyes pecked out in his bedroom. Uh, chills me to the bone, and it's interesting because then we go from the scene that is obviously incredibly horrific, and then the next scene is、um, Mitch has gone to back to the farm to answer some questions, and we have this once again this kind of really heavy psychological scene. Lydia speaks candidly about losing her husband, and she says, you know, he was always the one who could understand the children, and she basically just says how she just doesn't want to be left alone. She's really afraid of being、um, her children leaving her, and any woman that. Mitch loves would ultimately be the reason why he would leave. Maybe if she hadn't just seen someone with their eyes picked out, she wouldn't feel compelled to discuss this sort of thing. That's a really good point, actually. After Mel- Melanie and Lydia have this heart to heart, she agrees that she'll go pick up Kathy from school. And this is that scene we were talking about earlier, where you have the second and only time that diegetic music happens in the film. And I think, arguably, this scene is probably one of the most haunting for all of its elements: the the, the sound, the imagery of、um, the. Cr- Like the crows as they gather on the jungle gym, like a nightmare. Yeah, there's nothing more scary or haunting for me personally and in cinema than a bunch of children singing. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Amen. I mean, one thing I thought is the way that they go about getting the children out of the schoolhouse seemed very ineffective to me. It was rubbish.、Uh, why, why didn't they just stay in as well? It's like, why decide to leave now? Like, maybe just stay in the school and wait it out or something. But they're like, right, we're just going to charge out of the school and go for it. <laughs> Sometimes when something's so horrific, it's kind of it comes back around again and becomes funny. I was laughing as well. I'm there with you. I think it was for me the combination of the birds flapping about and the children flapping about and everybody screaming and sort of running. And the you know the techniques used, which have obviously aged, you know they were very impressive for their time. I just thought it was hilarious. If I'm not wrong, not one of those children gets killed by the birds, do they? That is correct. No, no children die. And I feel like that was, I feel like if this film was made today, there would be a child death at least. But I think that would not have made it past the censors in 1963.、Yeah. No. no, but it is it is terrifying. I think there's also this element of like. The the safe 
parts of society for children. All of this is just desecrated by the birds. You know, the fact that these kids are just not safe anywhere right now because the threat is something that is this innocuous animal that they wouldn't perceive it as a threat or as a dangerous animal. Nobody would worry about them being around birds or around or them being outside or anything like that. So kind of that combination of elements makes it so terrifying, I think, on so many levels. Yeah, definitely. definitely. It feels like this the the concept of this film is so scary. Like if if this were to happen, we would be screwed because birds can clearly from this film you can see they can get anywhere they can come down the chimney they can peck their way through windows so it's like you would not be safe anywhere and there's you know however many billion of them in the world they outnumber us kind of thing and it is i think the concept of it for me is scarier than monster movies like jaws where you're just in the water you're in danger it's like you you know it kind of is like the end of the world if this happened with birds i love that kind of one character the is it ornithologist who is in the bar? And oh, she's amazing. Yeah, I loved her. You know, she's the kind of the 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 kooky expert that you always need in a horror film. Exactly. That's actually the very next scene as well. It's okay. uh, after that attack. Melanie is calling her father to kind of report on the town's events. And then, yeah, as you say, this woman sort of sidles up and is like, well, let me tell you about birds. There's this guy in the bar as well who's sort of, you know, very in this very cowboy-esque way sort of just says, oh, we'll just shoot them all. We'll shoot all the birds and she's like oh really oh really let me tell you about how many birds there are in the world sir so it's kind of this (laughs) (laughs) this idea of this tiny you know non-threatening animal suddenly rebelling and the fact that there's just such sheer numbers of them and you know like mike was saying surprisingly strong like who would have thunk that their beaks could literally break glass? This kind of sudden threat out of nowhere <laughs> becomes almost a w- overwhelming. It's like, well, what do you do if all the ants in the world rebel? I was going to mention this. Have you guys seen uh, Phase 4? No. I have, but not in a long time. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Phase 4 is all about what if ants just got their shit together and started attacking. We'd be screwed. Well, M. Night Shyamalan made his little tribute to the birds, didn't he, with uh, The Happening, which was quite terrible. But it's that that idea of like nature biting back and nobody can do anything about it kind of thing. And it's like, it's a scary concept and it's been done to varying degrees of success. There's an attack in the main square and we get a gasoline leak spilling through. Just as the gasoline leak reaches a man, he strikes a match to light a cigar. And then, as I've written in all caps, all hell breaks loose. Hey, you! I really did try to find out canonically how many kills there are in this scene. And I don't know if you guys had any guesses, but what I have officially landed on is explicitly there is only one death in this scene. And that is the man who lights the cigar and bursts into flame. Yes, that's what I got as well. So after that chaos has sort of died down, um, we have this, this great moment, which I just think we need to touch upon, even if it's even if there's no kills, um, where they go back into the restaurant where so many people have taken refuge. And there's this local town woman who's really gotten herself worked up. And she has this great kind of piece to camera where she's screaming and accusing Tipehedron's character of bringing this darkness, this blackness, this evil with her. And she's the reason that all of these things are happening. And she's screaming and she's screaming. And then Tipehedron just slaps her across the face. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. She, she it's had great. it coming. I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil. Evil! <laughs> 
And then rather unfortunately, we get our next death. We find Annie laying on the front steps. Uh, She's been attacked by the birds and she's dead. This one is the one that's the biggest bummer for me in the film, I think. I really like Annie as a character. Mm. Yeah. I think this, as far as kills go, was the one that I also kind of had remembered in my mind. Just the image of kind of this woman laid out on the steps of her house, just completely, you know, almost bitten to shreds by the birds is quite it's quite graphic so mitch kathy melanie uh they return to the brenner farmhouse they board up everything and they sort of are just having this this horrifying moment where they're all their nerves are all completely shattered and they're sitting around in the evening once again this is where the soundtrack is super effective because you kind of can just consistently hear this these bird noises and it's enough to drive anyone crazy but imagine if you were sitting inside the house and then we just get this absolute madness all breaks loose so good and i think it's um in some ways one of the most effective moments because you haven't really got so many birds on screen it is pretty much entirely relying on sound design and them just sort of freaking out as these things are hitting the walls and the windows and things and uh you know that that is something that won't ever age just that incredible sound design and just these people reacting to it we have this moment afterwards where uh melanie is alone in the house or she's alone in part of the house and she hears some fluttering upstairs in kathy's bedroom and she goes to investigate the birds have broken through the ceiling and she's trapped in the room and they begin to just viciously attack her This scene very famously is one that she talked about filming as being just completely horrific experience filming it. They originally said that they were going to use mechanical birds to film a lot of the close-ups. And famously, she said that they switched the birds up for real birds at the last moment. Um, She was actually attacked by them and experienced injury from them and actually uh, broke down from exhaustion and had to stop filming for a week after the scene was finished filming. I remember uh, there are some shots later when uh, Rod Taylor comes and gets her. They had to use a body double for Tiffy because she was still in hospital or something. As a scene in the film, it's incredible but i can only think about poor tippy having to be submitted to like live birds being thrown in her face in in a sadistic way it kind of ties in with the horror of the film textually that you know that this poor actress was being put through this there's the two contexts there's watching the film and taking the scene at face value and then there's the retrospective of knowing what went into that production and into that scene specifically whether or not it's worth it artistically and of course it isn't but the scene does look incredibly effective doesn't it it's really scary and horrible and that's partly because you know that that is real and that suffering is real and it's just yeah it's um it's a difficult and jarring scene to watch i think but kind of in a good way it adds to this layer almost of voyeurism like you're being made to participate in someone else's you know kind of depraved pleasure in watching someone suffer maybe that's the whole point of watching horror movies in general you know we're kind of getting some sort of kick out of watching uh gruesome images on screen but always with the caveat that it's fictional if suddenly they turn around and they tell you that everything that you're watching is actually reality and that those people are actually suffering brings up a lot of really uncomfortable questions and i think kind of one of the one of the things that makes the bird such a gruesome and uncomfortable watch in especially in that in that final scene is that you can't really tell knowing the backstory 
which shots are tipihedron acting and which ones aren't? So that's kind of the, the very last terrifying ultimate moment of the film. And then we just have one last closing scene really where the four make their escape. The property is now literally covered in birds um, and they make their escape in Mitch's car. And we've had a bit of a radio broadcast as well, kind of noting that other mysterious bird attacks are happening. The film sort of famously ends without an ending. You know, we're never really given explanations for things. We're never really, we're kind of led to believe that this is only the end of maybe this this first chapter of this story for these characters. Um, what do you guys think of sort of this ambiguous open-ended ending? Creepy, very creepy. Uh, I think it's a really good ending. I think that kind of that last moment when they have to walk out through all of the birds when they're just really still and quiet is actually, you know, again, a really sort of tense moment. And yeah, I love that just kind of uneasy feeling that the film leaves you with as it ends. Mm. I always think of that shot. Uh, it's like the cameras on the porch looking out. It's just a masterpiece, that composition. And you have this like ray of light coming through the dark clouds. It looks like a, a classical painting. Um, and as you said, Mike, like the silence, uh, for me, it's literally, it's one of the scariest shots of the movie, I think. Yeah. And, and the fact the ending is open and ambiguous adds to that. Definitely. This is where we're going to get into the kill counts. And I guess we can, I, I think I'm going to be generous in this because technically there are three total human deaths on screen, but there's four if you count the goal because of the kind of significance of that one bird death i'm willing to give three or four for this wow does this mean i get my first point it means dan that you do indeed get your first point oh my god this is how, hey. it, feels. This is how it feels and anna i'm really sorry but uh you were a little too ambitious in your in your guessing <laughs> I, I think i overestimated just how many birds die in this in the birds so there you have it Thanks so much for joining us for another death by death breakdown of a classic horror film, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. For more Kill Count content, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Kill Count Pod. You can also watch tons of great horror content on Fear, the home of horror, on YouTube. All links are in the show notes. Kill Count Podcast is hosted by Ali Penelope, Dan Yakuno, and Mike Munzer. Produced by Jay Cunningham, Jake Yard, Ali, Dan, and Mike. Edited by Jamie Maisner and Charlie Grace. Artwork and social media by Ugna Dereshkevichuda. We have a little last minute treat for you. This week, Mike is going to give us a horror haiku. Okay. This one's partly for, for, for Anna as well. Okay. Aww. So this is for you all to guess. Here we go. Phallic drill murders. Not your typical <laughs> sleepover. How will they survive? Wait, say it again. I'm sorry. I laughed. I laughed over that after the first line. Phallic drill murders. Not your typical sleepover. How will they survive? Ah, oh, shit. I didn't know this. Oh, it's Slumber Party Massacre. It is Slumber Party Massacre. What an incredible film. What an incredible franchise. And an incredible haiku. What an amazing franchise. I saw this on the big screen for the first time, uh, thanks to Anna and the final <laughs> oh, girls, actually, who put that event on at the BFI. It was wonderful.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.